0: Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Psalm 136. We're going to look at Psalm 136 today, and we're going to take a little side angle as we approach this psalm, because I want us to see something that we really see in all the psalms, but we see it particularly in this one, and that is that informed praise informs praise. That is, when you watch somebody give thoughtful worship, it inspires our own worship and the way we worship God. When we watch someone do this well and creatively and imaginatively, it shapes the way that we worship the Lord. When we read this psalm together, we're going to see that he begins and ends by saying, give thanks to God for these things. Give thanks to him. And the Hebrew meaning of that word, to give thanks, does include show gratitude, be grateful, But it also implies, I want you to acknowledge and confess these things to be true. When the psalmist is saying to the congregation, give thanks to God, he's saying, agree with me on this point. Hear what I say about the Lord and agree what I say that this is true and this is what it points to. So that's how he begins and ends. And then the body of the psalm we're going to see is basically three stories or three events in the Old Testament. Now think about this before we read the psalm. If you were a parent in Old Testament times, and you had kids, and you lived in the day of Moses, and you were thinking about three stories to tell your kids that would communicate to them who God is, what he's like, and how he feels towards them, and all you had was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's all you had to choose from, Which three stories from that section do you think you would tell your kids? What would best communicate to them who God is, what he's like, and what he feels towards them? Would you talk about Abraham and God's covenant with him? Would you talk about Isaac or Jacob? Would you talk about the barrenness of their wives? Would you talk about Joseph and the salvation of Egypt? What would you talk about to communicate who God is? Well, the psalmist picks his own three events, and we're going to see what those are, creation, Exodus, and Conquest. And I want you to listen for those because we're going to take each of those three in this sermon and we're going to unpack how the psalmist thoughtfully looks at those stories, draws worship out of them, and how that changes the way we do worship and we think about our worship. Now, Psalm 136 was meant to be read responsively. It's a beast. It's 26 verses. We won't be able to do that for the entire psalm and get out of here by lunchtime. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the first three verses Responsively, I'm going to read the first section, and I want you to respond, no matter what translation you have, with the ESV's version, for his steadfast love endures forever. We're going to do that for the first three verses, and then I'm going to re- read the remaining of the psalm. Let's do this together. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For His steadfast love endures forever. Now let me read to him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, it takes this massive psalm and this sweep of Israel's earliest history to remind us of a simple truth It will take the rest of our Christian lives and the rest of eternity to understand that your love is true and it's real and it's going to last forever and ever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a miracle in our hearts and you would teach us these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we said that the psalmist is going to take three events from Israel's history and point us to praise, creation and exodus and conquest. And I want us to look at each of those in turn and watch how he does this poetically and imaginatively. Look at creation, that's in verses four through nine. He says in verse four that God alone does great wonders. And he says in verse six that he spreads out the earth above the waters. He's using poetic language here. And he's saying what we see as just incredible valleys and magnificent mountains and distant islands to God who created them, that's like setting the dinner table. He spreads these things out like a cover that goes over them. And in verses 7 through 9, he begins to wonder at those great lights that rule the night and the day, the sun, the moon, and the stars. You know, the stars come up often in our Bibles, and I've always wondered how much Israel actually knew about what the stars were. What did they know or think about when they thought of the stars? It at least inspired their praise, but it really reminds me of that great scene in The Lion King where you have Timon and Pumbaa sitting together. They're laying on their backs, and they're looking at the night sky. And Pumbaa, the warthog, says to Timon, whatever he is, like a groundhog thing, do you ever wonder what those sparkly things are up in the sky? And Timon says, I don't have to wonder. I know exactly what they are. Those are fireflies that got stuck in some kind of sticky black thing. And Pumbaa says, that's amazing, because I always thought they were burning balls of gas millions of miles away. And Timon says, man, with you, everything's gas. I mean, were those conversations happening with first century Israel? Whatever it was, they looked up into the sky and they saw these great lights and they thought about them like little kings holding court over the night and the day. And when the psalmist sees that and thinks about it poetically, he says, how can these things not point us to the great and good God who created them? who loves us forever and ever. And so he pulls this entire congregation into worship by looking at and marveling over creation. Informed worship informs worship. When we watch the psalmist do this, when we watch him lead a whole congregation into worship by thinking creatively about God's creation, we get to do the same thing. I mean, think about all the places in our life where we can let creation point us to thoughtful worship of our God. I think about, of the hundred places to do this, the dinnertime prayer, the benign Christian family pre-dinner prayer. Has there ever been a Christian family that didn't suffer from a rut of praying before every meal? I mean, I picture Moses sitting down with his son, Jershem before dinner and saying, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. I mean, what else can you pray after you've done this a hundred times? I love in our family how we do this together. We, we let our kids uh, pray for the evening meal, and they each have, have a pet thing that they pray for, which I love. Ami, our five-year-old, will always say at the dinnertime prayer, Lord, I pray that we have a really fun day today. And I just don't have the heart to break it to her. She's going to bed in an hour. The day's done. You should have prayed that at breakfast. And Judah, our sweet son, will always and forever pray, Lord, I thank you for this wonderful feast. We're having honey nut Cheerios, but, but Judah is praying for the wonderful feast set before him. I love this. How can we continue to foster this kind of creativity in ourselves and in our family? Because the dinnertime prayer or a pre-meal prayer is a place to think about creation. We're sitting down at a table. Sometimes we're sitting with other people. We're about to eat something. All of that is very physical and part of this very good creation. How can it point us back to God in worship? We're not talking about dense theological prayers here. We're talking about thoughtful ones. And we can start with what Psalm 136 has given us. Lord, when I wake up in the morning and I see the sun, it can't help but make me think that the same power you use to create this thing, you use to love us forever and ever. When I drive to work, when I walk to the park, when I see the things that you have created, and I know that your power is behind it, I thank you that that same power applies to your love, which lasts forever and ever. When we see this kind of thoughtful praise, it ignites this in us. We are thoughtful about our own praise. That's creation, and then the psalmist immediately moves into Exodus in verses 10 through 16. Now, if you were to pick up your Bible randomly and open to Psalm 136, verse 10, and put your finger there and read it, you would probably be appalled by what it said. I mean, look at this. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's okay to put question marks in your Bible and say, what is God talking about? How does killing children have anything to do with the steadfast love of God? Well, this whole next section in the psalm is going to take us, transport us from the magnificence of creation to the affection of the Exodus and what God is doing here striking down the firstborn of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, overthrowing Pharaoh and his army, leading Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness. All of these scenes, many of them very violent scenes, are immortalized for Israel as the way the God has saved them, the way he has delivered them out of slavery and into safety. You know, at the time of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 1 and 2, Israel was nothing but an oppressed ethnic group. They were slaves in Egypt, and they probably weren't going to last very long. And they began to cry out to God. And in Exodus chapter 3, God meets with Moses, their deliverer, in the burning bush, And what he says to Moses about his people and the verbs that he uses about his determination to save in Exodus 3 should send shivers down our spine. I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. That's what God says for his people Israel. And God, based on his promise so many years ago to Abraham, comes down and he is armed with hardening the heart of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. He is armed with 10 plagues as such the world has never seen. He is armed with an angel of death who strikes down the firstborn of all Egyptians. He comes down and takes a people that was on the cusp of genocide and draws Israel out of Egypt and leads them into the wilderness and makes them the center of his salvation plan for the entire cosmos. You talk about something that is synonymous with salvation and liberation and that is the exodus when the worship leader in Psalm 136 wants to stir the heart of the people to think about the steadfast love of God forever, he says, you've got to think about the Exodus. Think about what God has done on your behalf in the Exodus. That's how you worship. That's how you think about the love of God, which lasts forever. Think about his deliverance for you. That does the same thing in our hearts. When we, when we read about the Exodus, when we understand the salvation of God, it does the same thing for us today as worshipers. We can find no better lead worshiper than John the Baptist. Do you remember when John the Baptist first saw Jesus in his public ministry, the thing that he says to him? The Exodus immediately pops into John's mind and the first time he lays Eyes on Jesus, coming to do his public ministry, he says what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John the Baptist is doing is he is taking the entire Exodus story and rereading it with Jesus smack dab in the center of it. When John says, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's paraphrasing Exodus 3, and he's saying to Jesus the same thing that God said to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus, you have seen our affliction. You have heard our cry. You know our sufferings, and you have come down to deliver us. You are here, and we are watching a brand new exodus unfold before our eyes. We read about the original exodus in the book of Exodus, and that gets us excited about the salvation of God, but you and I are heirs to a far greater covenant, are we not? Israel slaughtered their own lamb and painted that blood on their doorpost, and they were spared in the Passover, You and I have watched God give his only begotten son, the Lamb of God, to pay for the sins of the world. Israel, they were liberated from Egypt. They knew what slavery was like. And they left Egypt and entered the promised land. You and I have been delivered not from the slavery of Egypt, but the slavery of sin and death. Israel, they went on to inherit the promised land. You and I will inherit and rule over the new heavens and the new earth. When we watch the psalmist do this, take us through the story of the exodus, it begins to fire off our imagination as we think of the aspects of our own salvation, of our new and greater exodus that God has achieved for us. And that inspires our worship. When we think about that, we think... God's love endures forever. It lasts forever. When I watch the way he has saved me, I can't help but think that his love goes on and on and on. He talks about creation. He talks about Exodus. Finally, he talks about conquest in verses 17 to 22. Now, when I asked you before we read Psalm 136, what stories you would tell your Old Testament kids Some of you might have thought, hey, I'd tell them about creation, and some of you might have thought, I'd tell them about the Exodus. I guarantee you not a single person in this room thought, I'd tell my kids about Sihon and Og. These two Amorite kings, that would be a great place to go in my Bible, Numbers 21, I'll tell them about that. Nobody thought about that. But in verses 17 to 22, that's exactly what the psalmist does. He walks us through this story of victory in which Israel defeated these two kings. And then in verse 21 of our psalm, he says he gives, God gave Israel their land as a heritage. Now, you'll remember the story of these two kings. Actually, I say that, but you probably won't remember the story of these two kings. But if you go home and look it up in Numbers 21, it's just a blip in the Pentateuch. I mean, it's just part of Numbers 21, but it's the story of these two kings, and it comes at a very vulnerable time in Israel's history. They've gone through the exodus. They've come into the wilderness. They've approached the promised land and they send out uh, the spies to check out the land so that they can conquer it and inherit it. And of course, the spies come back and say, it looks too difficult. The people rebel. They say, we're not going to go into the land. And so God says, I'm going to judge you now and promise you that none of you Who have rejected me will enter the Promised Land. Israel, you will now wander for forty years in the wilderness, and not a single adult who heard about the Promised Land, who heard these spies, will enter it. All of them will die in the wilderness, and only the new generation will come in. Well, that's all just happened. They just heard that. We're still on the front of the end of those forty years, and they're standing outside the Promised Land, and they can't go in the Promised Land. And here you have hundreds of thousands of people who have just plundered the wealth of Egypt, so they're well-to-do, and they have no place to go. They have no fortress, no city, no land, no defense, and they're kind of sitting ducks on the edge of the promised land. And the Canaanites who live in the promised land, they see that and they begin to attack. They say, hey, this is a great opportunity. If we conquer these people, we have slaves and we have wealth, and this is a win-win. As they start to attack, Moses approaches this man, Sihon, who's the king of the Amorites, and he says to him, Look, man, I plead with you. We have got to get out of here. Will you let us pass through your land, staying on the highway, paying back anything that we eat or drink, just so that we can get out of here and get away from these Canaanites who are attacking us? And Sihon, when he hears this message, says what a great opportunity. Here's this vulnerable people who have nowhere to go and they want to pass through my land. He marshals his entire army and he goes out to attack Israel at their lowest point and an absolute miracle occurs. You have the people of Israel who have been slaves their entire life. They have zero military experience. They know how to cut straw to make bricks, but they couldn't swing a sword at a man if you paid them. And out comes Sihon and his Amorites, battle-hardened men of war, and they face Israel, and God gives Israel victory over them. It's a miracle. And right after Sihon comes, of Bashan, he comes out next, and they defeat him too. And Israel realizes something about their God. He has judged them and told them they will not enter the promised land, but they realize very vividly in this victory, God hasn't left us. He's with us. He told us that his love is everlasting and it goes on forever, but it's one thing to hear that God forgives and forgets, and it's a wholly other thing to watch the God of heaven come to our aid and deliver us from certain death. That changed the people of Israel forever. They knew that this was a God who would love them and care for them. You know, this story that the psalmist recounts, this was such a powerful miracle, even though it doesn't take up a lot of square footage in our Bibles, that the people of Israel and the people of Jericho remember this story 40 years later. So after the defeat of Sihon and Og, you know that Israel went into the wilderness and they wandered for 40 years. And anybody who fought in that battle died off. That generation died off. And the only way young Israelites knew about that battle is because parents told their kids. Kids, I gotta tell you about our God. He led us out through the Exodus. He gave us victory over these other kings. Well, when Israel comes back to the promised land, 40 years later, led by Joshua, they send two spies across The Jordan River and into Jericho, and they sit down with Rahab the prostitute who receives the two spies, and she says to them, I know about the Exodus, and I know about Sihon, and I know about Og. Now how on earth would a pagan prostitute in a city four decades later know about what happened across the Jordan? Because the exact same thing was happening in Jericho. Just like the people of Israel were telling their kids about the God of Israel, the people in Jericho must have been telling their kids about the God of Israel. Can you imagine that? That pagans were evangelizing their kids. They were sitting down with their kids in Jericho and they were saying to them, I want to tell you about our deities in Jericho. These are our gods. This is what they're like. This is how we serve them. But to be fair, I should also tell you that there's a God in Israel and this is what he's like. His love for his people never ends, and when they face adversity, he comes to their aid and he conquers. And as you're growing up in Jericho, I just want you to know that that we have our deities, but there's something special about this deity across the Jordan River. And so Rahab grows up in one of those households as a prostitute in a pagan city, worshiping the gods of Jericho. And when she receives those two spies, She says, I know that you're God. He's the God of the heavens, and he's the God of the earth. I know what he did in the Exodus. I know what he did to Sihon. I know what he did to Og. That's the God I want to side with. Here's this woman who knows the creation, the Exodus, and the conquest, and an unbeliever becomes a believer, and Rahab is listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She knows the God of Israel. God is demonstrating his love to us and informed worship informs our worship. When we read that God comes to the aid of his people in conquest, we realize the steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. Now I wanna wrap this to a close with the main point of this psalm. It's hard to miss because the psalmist has the congregation repeat it 26 times, lest we forget. We started with a little Old Testament exercise. We said, what were the stories that you would pick to tell your kids about God? That's not actually the question that the psalmist is asking per se. He's asking, how do the creation, the exodus, and the conquest cause us to feel and know about our God? What do we see about the God of Israel in these things? Unless we forget, he repeats it again and again and again. When I wake up in the morning in this physical world that God created, when I see the sun warming my window and I begin to creak around with those early morning steps and I brew a cup of coffee that I know was grown out of the ground somewhere and I know that God has created all of these things, what am I supposed to think and feel at that moment? Psalm 136 the steadfast love of the Lord, it lasts forever and ever and ever. When I think about the Exodus, when I think about God leading Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and that causes me to think about my own Exodus, how he has brought me out of darkness and into light, how he's brought me out of death and into life. And when I even think about all the days I don't think about the Exodus, and I don't let that story of salvation stir my heart, What am I supposed to feel? Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord, you can't imagine. It's forever and ever and ever. When I see enemies form around me, when I feel pressed from every every side, either from anxiety or depression or my sin and my lust and my shame or an unkind word from somebody I thought was a friend or the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and I know that God alone is my defender who comes to my aid in my time of trouble, What am I supposed to feel? Psalm 136. The steadfast love of the Lord is unlike anything you can imagine. It lasts forever and ever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, these words are too good to be true, that your steadfast love endures, that we see it in your creation and everything you've made. We see it in the exodus and how you saved and delivered us. And we see it in your conquest, how you are our defender. You do conquer on our behalf and you will consummate all things perfectly and wonderfully. When we think on that, Lord, would you stir us to remember that your love is forever?